My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the products, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits. And we'll bring to you a vast variety of knowledge covering a wide range of events. Now, I'd like now to introduce Mike Winch. He's one of the few people who knew me when I was alive. Um, Mike was one of my athletes originally at the Winter Olympic Camp. So we held from 1968 to 1978 at Crystal Palace uh, under the Southern Counties. He was then an outstanding putter, technically absolutely excellent. And since his uh, retirement from putting, he coached, of course, Judy Oaks. And Judy and he are working as a, as a team, really, in helping produce a fresh, dynamic generation of coaches. Can I begin the session by asking you, when did you come into the sport and what did you find when you arrived? 1962 was my first ever competition. And that makes me a bit of an old person here, doesn't it, really? I got into the international team in 1973, Commonwealth Games, 74, 78 and 82, a couple of European Championships, five European Indoor Championships. I started actually coaching in 1974, and the first person I coached was uh, Judy here. She looked as though she had loads of potential, but was throwing with a, a technique that probably would have done... Uh, Chariots of Fire, quite a favour. I decided I'd try and help her and coached her for 25 years. Yeah. To quite a lot of success. So I was actually coaching while I was throwing, um, competing at the top level. And Judy, you had a pretty extensive career too, covering not only track and field, but uh, powerlifting. That's right, yeah, powerlifting, weightlifting. It was a case of I happened to find I was good at it. It wasn't planned. It's just because I'm quite short and quite fiery. I seem to have a good attitude to do heavy weights. Um, initially, though, I Mike said I had to go in the gym and I was hanging on to the door saying I don't want to end up looking like an East German or Russian. But uh, he soon made me realise that it was all about diet and how you trained um, and not anything else and that I'd be okay. But it was um, a case of when I went in the gym, Yeah. I the first time I went in, and there was only two other athletes in the gym at Crystal Palace, females, and that was Janice Kerr and Brenda Bedford, my predecessors. The lads used to load my weights for me, and then when I actually started to improve and get a weight on the bar, they said, load your own bar. That's when I knew I was accepted. <laughs> I had a similar entry to weight training, weightlifting, but not quite the same as yours. Had you experienced any coaching before you met? Yes, I'd had, had a couple of coaches. I mean... One coach refused to coach me because he said I'd never get anywhere. Then there was a chap called um, George Watton who helped me, but unfortunately he passed away suddenly. And then someone said, well, try going up Crystal Palace and seeing Otto Feldmanis, who coached many discus throwers to internationals. And then he said, I can't do any more for you. Um, maybe Mike would take you on. So I went over to Mike with my father and said, please, Mr. Winch, would you coach me? And he said, I've seen you throw. And he said, yeah, OK, let's give it a go. And that was it. So he's never been called Mr. Winch. Yeah, that didn't last long. 
I mean, you, you were very fortunate, actually, Judy, in the sense that you got someone in the auto who's generous enough to say, no, I've reached the limit of what I can do. Nowadays, that's not common practice. Well, nowadays, it seems to be that if you show any promise, then you're whipped up by someone else who's offering you lots of goodies. Yeah. When I was coming through, loyalty was the most important thing. I was offered a number of times to, to move and change coaches, and I said no. I wouldn't be where I am without Mike, and I'm not going to just walk away now that he's got me to the top. Now, going back to you, I'll be sort of doing this. It'll be rather like tennis, moving between the two of you, back and forward. A bit like volleyball then, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, but I do not want to be reminded of volleyball because <laughs> every reference to it has got a toxic quality indicating that you remember my incompetence all too clearly. Um, you were Notto being on opposite sides of the yeah. <laughs> at uh, Southern Camps, and we oh yes, indeed. hit it where either one of you should have been, and we knew we'd win the point because you were always running all over the court trying to cover everybody. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Well, move away from volleyball for a moment. Now, Mike, if there's any short description you could make of the world that you entered when you started as an athlete, how would you describe it? both not only in terms of coaching, but in terms of competition. I have very, very fond memories of the system back then. I was a Southern athlete, and when I came into the sport, I, I actually competed in the English schools, which was a superb competition. Yeah, It was the aspiration of every athlete to get to the English schools, as it, as it is now in many ways. But I remember striving to get there. I, I competed in it for four years. I came 10th, 14th, 5th and 1st. I was highly motivated and determined by that sort of competition to go and win. And, and that gave me the inspiration. I remember my first competition in the English schools at Chelmsford very, very clearly. I can picture the circle now and the fact that I made a complete mess of it and was really angry with myself. Can you both pinpoint a time in your career that's one which you most enjoy reminiscing about? Well, for me, it was at the Commonwealth Games in 1982. And it came to the fifth round. I was leading with a British record. My rival had one more throw. And I looked up for moral support because I had one more throw as well. And I couldn't see Mike in the stands and he couldn't take it anymore. So he was lying on the floor between the seats. That's pathetic, Mike. That's pathetic. I was looking for a really up, uplifting, <laughs> an uplifting memory, and Mike language in his feet. Yeah. It's hardly going to be that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I was ever told when I made the British team was not bad, a pity you're too small to ever make it by a national event coach. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And he never forgot it. Every time he saw me, I, oh, this is Judy Oak. She's the best athlete in the shop ever. And I said, it's all right. Yeah. I still remember what he said to me. No, there's some things you never forget. That's right. Need and need. No, well, let's see if we can lift it to a higher level, Michael. What's your memory? <laughs> well, I, I never got to the higher echelons, you know. Two real great moments in my career. First was winning the English schools. You know, I just beat somebody who should have panned me. It was a great time, and I threw PB and record and so on. It's lovely, lovely occasion. The other time was actually throwing my best ever at Crystal Palace in front of about, I don't know, about 800 people. Competition that Andy Norman had set up, which was uh, Borough Road versus the three A's. Andy brought over Al Feuerbach, who was the world record holder, to compete against Jeff, 
Jeff Capes, who was the British record holder, and myself, who was biting his rear. And we had just a fantastic competition. I mean, I, there was never any chance of me winning it, but I felt that I was there competing probably for the first and only time at world class, really. In in the you know within in the fourth round, I took the lead of the competition, and then Al had to come back, and Jeff had to come back, and I had to try and come back. I threw a PB, and you can remember those moments really, really clearly, and how you felt, and the exhilaration that ran through your body when you actually made that that performance. I've got pictures of me jumping up and down like an idiot, and I look back at it, and it looks very insignificant. You know, in terms of global global significance, to me, it was like the greatest thing in the world at the time. Actually, it was quite a minor competition. You know, yeah, I can under I can understand that, Mike. It's not it's a relative thing. Yeah, you know, very personal. You know, I mean, I would say the athlete competes against the man or woman he was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, he competes against his shadow. Yeah, I mean, I can remember walking into the stadium for my first. Uh, Olympics and feeling the floor vibrate with the crowd noise and that just blew me away that was the most amazing experience I think it's only right Tom though that we we ask you how you felt when you threw your hammer PB (laughs) my hammer PB was tricky because I didn't have any to drop one like you in the sense that I had no background in hammer throwing I was 65 or so 63 for Christ's sake And I can only do two turns. The three turns is way beyond me. I would have been, you know, I'd have chucked it into the end of the crowd. And I got a second. Yeah. So uh, the memory that I remember most was the very first time I triple jumped. That was the Scottish schools. And I never triple jumped into a pit in my life. Never. I'd messed up in 100 yards. I'd messed up the long jump. I was useless in the high jump. So I'd hop onto one foot, step onto the other foot, into the pit. Got it. Hop. Right. Got, got it. Broke the Scottish record, my first jump. Fantastic. I ever took. No, it wasn't a very good record. The Scottish yeah. Schools record. It wasn't a very good record. I'll always remember that moment where I suddenly went from being nobody to suddenly I'm in the, I'm in the British rankings. I was fourth in the British rankings that year. You fit the nail right on the head. That was the same as you, but I was that was the first jump I ever took. What I try and say to every athlete is that your athletics is an expression of you as a person because you're good, you can express yourself and you will feel that. You will feel that in your heart. But, yeah. Totally agree with that. You, you, you're a different person. You're somebody at last. That's right. You've used this sport to be somebody. Yeah. yeah. Often people say, oh, well, wouldn't you rather have done this, that and the other? And I said, I would not change anything. That was it. At all. If I had the choice again, I would make exactly the same choice as going to shop pudding because I loved it. And I wouldn't change a thing. And I think if you can, at the end of the day, put your hand on your heart and say, I've done something to the best of my ability, it doesn't matter what it is. Exactly right. Whether it's academic, sporting or whatever, if you can do that, then you can be content with your life. And I'm very content. I'm very happy. You know, that I'm I'm fortunate that I have my family support and Mike's excellent coaching to do what I did. At the time you set the British record, did you always think that it would really stand the test of time, that it was a, a real mark in that sense um well yes I knew it was a long way I mean I look at it now and think how the hell did I do that but one of my major problems coming through was that Mike said oh if you throw 60 feet which is 1832 then that will be amazing so when I threw 1843 it blew me out I thought but Mike knows everything 
and he's told me I couldn't throw that far, and now I have. Yeah. And it took a long time to get my brain organised, say, actually, be better yeah. than he said. I can remember the eight, uh, the 1936, and yeah, lovely book, it yeah. was just, I didn't feel anything. Oh, how'd that go that far? And then the next one, I thought, I'm going to hit hell out of it, and it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> it was just, you know, you, you good throws, you don't feel it doesn't hurt, but most of you yeah. hurt <laughs> because you haven't got something quite right. Yes. Uh, we're in a much more a different society than the one that we were brought up in. You've got a society of mobile phones, computer games. You've got a society of many, many more sports. Educational demands, I think, now. The actual landscape has changed, hasn't it? And the question is, have we related to that landscape? The answer is simply no. I did a very interesting exercise uh, a few weeks back part of the Coaches Association, I wanted to communicate with all the clubs. Last time I did an analysis of clubs, there were 1,900 track and field clubs. Have you any idea how many there are now? And I went through every single track, every single club, all online. Yes, about 400. Yeah, about 400 track and field clubs. And you can't develop a sport at grassroots level if all you're aiming at is medals because you're going to just dismiss people who you perceive as being no good. So the technical events, which take, you know, 10, 15 years to develop, are going to be chucked out of the group before they've even got a chance to show any potential. Well, I think I think this rot started in 1984 when Mike and I were representatives on the BAAB and we went to the selection meeting after the trials for the Olympics they left seven athletes under the age of 23 out of the field events who'd qualified with the B standard. And they had something like 18 people for the four by one. Yeah. And he said, hold on a minute. These these kids have worked themselves to a frazzle. They said, oh, well, they've got no experience. So I turned around and said, well, how do they get experience? If you I take them. Exactly. Lynn Davis messed up his first Olympics and then was yeah. a gold medalist four years later because yeah. he experienced the... Yeah ethos and tension and everything else yeah the, the whole environment of that big meeting like the olympics or the commonwealth a european is is quite different isn't it and you so and the only way you can learn how to to deal with it is to start and have a go at it well that's why the english schools is so good because it's yeah. pretty similar you have to go into a call room you know and we say well that's a fantastic learning curve for the kids don't lose it yeah. I can remember when I was younger and doing all these South of England squads and mixing it up with all my rivals and training hard together and having a feeling of belonging. Towards the end of my career, I didn't feel that at all. You know, the only time I was needed in the team was when they had the European Cup. And that's because they had to have a have the throwers there, the jumpers there, and it was very running orientated and at one point, I did actually refuse to compete for Britain, which hurt incredibly when they first brought money in because they were treating me with disrespect and put me in a, the lowest category with people who'd never won a major championship. And I had three Commonwealth medals. I said no. And in the end, they did say, OK, you know, we'll, we'll respect you that you are in the wrong category. But it killed me not competing for my country particularly when on those in those years I was starting to throw British records. I love my country. I love competing for my country. And 
it's very rare I see an athlete and I think, oh, yep, they're special. They've got a passion for throwing. They want to do it. And that's what's missing. Kids coming into it, they'd rather go and play rugby or football or netball or any team sport rather than doing track and field. I used to go to the Kent County Championships and have to qualify to make the final. Now you're lucky if you get three people in all the age groups and we've lost the base of the pyramid. This this kind of raises quite an interesting point, Tom, actually. Um, as an aficionado of history, you'll remember Sam Mussabini, yeah? Not personally. And no, no, best no. of fire. <laughs> I think you were competing, weren't you? No, not personally. No, I'll let you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, and I remember watching Chariots of Fire, and it's, I find that a fabulously inspirational film. And the last tiny bit where Sam Mussabini is sitting in his hotel room listening to his athlete winning. No, no. And I have to say, in at the vast majority of championships I've been to, I've generally been funded by Eddie Kulikundis or myself to go to them, never been allowed to take my athlete into the warm-up area and into the check room. Yes. And I remember very, very clearly in the 2000 Olympics when Judy was competing and she, she really was up for getting into the final, I had to stand outside the fence of the warm-up track to speak to her because the then national coach would not allow me or wouldn't be bothered to get me a pass to get in and take her through into the final, uh, into the uh, check-in. And on that day, Judy lost the final by two centimetres. Yeah. You know, and if I can be absolutely honest with you, this is one of my great motivating forces in in trying to get a better deal for coaches because I I just find that unbelievable. I, I have probably been to 20 championships where they've not allowed me. Judith gold medal at the Commonwealth Games, and I remember a lady point blank refused to let me get anywhere near the warm-up area or the check-in because she said, oh, well, we've got people to do that job. I didn't know that. Because they don't understand how personal coaching is. We we look at coaching and we think of coaching as a technical profession like teaching, but it's not at all. It's a personal relationship which needs to be carried through yes. the whole process. And this process is something that we, we all need to, to get to grips with. Mm. The people who could have been good or could have got through to a final or could have got a medal had they had their personal coach there must number in the hundreds. And it's this kind of thing that we needed sorting out. In 2002, I was the chief coach to the England team at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. I managed to get 104 coaches passes to see their athletes compete because I said, I just showed them the rule book and said, it says in the IAAF rule book that at major championships, every personal coach is entitled to a seat near their athlete. And they went, oh, no, they're not. And I said, yes, they are. Here it is in writing. Well, that's remarkable. You know, so you can do these things if there's a will. It's all connected with the amateur history. People came into administering athletics because they had the time and because they wanted kudos. So they didn't want other people querying the pitch. And that has sort of continued on through to this day. Instead of, we, we shouldn't have team coaches, we should have team athlete managers because that's their job, managing the athletes. And then the coaches who are the people, personal coaches, are they are the ones that should be invited into the environment to help their athletes perform. 
So there is a kind of, you know, I mean, you've been in that situation many times, Tom, but as a professional, you probably didn't hit quite the same barriers that I did in in not being a professional. But I also think it comes down to a lower level as well, because when I first competed and I was obviously at the top of my sport, I couldn't do a Southern Championships. I couldn't do the shot because there was close friends wedding. And I thought, no, that won't happen again. I'm going to the wedding. I can do next year's championships. And they moved the shot put, the day of the shot put, to accommodate me so that I could compete. Now you have an athlete trying to qualify for the Olympic Games, asked if they can guest in the Southerns because they haven't entered in time or something happened. No. I thought they were there to help the athlete. I mean, that to me is the sole purpose of our sole purpose. I mean, our officials administrators, coaches, is to provide something of quality that people will want to stay in and also stay in beyond their careers, as you have. Yeah. I don't think it's just that, Tom. I think it's also the fact that now we've got Masters Athletics. A lot of the people who would have come back in doing coaching and refereeing and move into Masters within the clubs are still competing. That's right. More fun. Well, that's yeah, really it's less aggravation, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, to be fair, I mean, Masters Athletics is one area in which standards are improving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It's because people are staying in and going into it. One of the factors you've already said in technical events, and that's the eight field events and the two, you know, two huddled events, the standards over the last 15 years or so have dropped from 13 to 15, 15 to 17, under 20 and senior. There may be an odd event where they've stayed level or got slightly better, but generally speaking, the standards have actually dropped. Yeah. You have to ask yourself, why is that? There's there's an awful lot of different reasons. One is retention. We can't retain kids. Two is because there's too much travel. Yeah. Three is because there aren't the good coaches around. You know, I mean, one of the major issues that we're trying to clear up is that the clubs have to understand that they have to pay for services. Yes. Um, they have to pay for coaches these days. They have to pay for officials. You know, they even have to pay administrators. There's a fantastic example of this. A couple of athletes yeah. with an athletic club were single-handed in producing yeah. an arena, which is a track, and then there's an in- athletics indoor facility with a throwing cage, jumping areas, etc., etc. Athletics coaches now have to pay per hour to go in there to coach their athletes per lane. Yeah. Not only that, is an organization of cheerleaders who have lots of little kids prancing about and doing cheerleading have paid £140,000 to hire the facility for the year. Good God. The reason they can do that is because they charge each of those parents of the little kids, so many hundreds of pounds just to belong to it, let alone have a session. In the athletics, you've got club subs that's supposed to cover administration, coaching, track hire, officials, etc., etc. travel, everything. And that's why the club system's collapsing is because basically football, rugby, hockey, cheerleading in this case you know what one of the most important things we haven't got in this country is indoor areas for athletics and now we're just letting it slip through our hands how ridiculous is that i hadn't heard the cheerleading one yeah. before but i'd had the other issues that you've described you'd be quite uh, good at that tom what 
Well, no, possibly, but a bit late in time. Uh, we were yeah. a bit late coming to me. One of the problems it seems to me is that other sports look. Take rugby. Uh, I worked with the English rugby team in two World Cups, and it was all amateur. Yeah, it suddenly changed to professional. Now, even the most ordinary, basic clubs, you know, really junior clubs, have got a part-time professional working at the top and maybe a forwards coach paid, a backs coach paid, somebody else paid to deal with a mini rugby. Tennis, I've got, again, I've got a professional and a semi-professional yep. environment. And, and and you could say that through most sports. And we're one of the sports, swimming certainly, yep. more more than any, it always has had but we're this, one of the few sports that has not moved with the times. And so you know, we've left it to individual people just to set up their own little squads and so on. Interestingly, since since we've been trying to get the coaches together and, and forming the association now, we've found that there are actually quite a few individual coaches who've got so fed up with the club that they've moved out of the club yeah. and created their own organisations. And what they've said is people will pay. Yeah. In fact, we've, su we've suggested rates of pay for coaches that they should ask for if, if they want to. They don't have to, but, you know, there are rates of pay for the job. I mean, we've taught at a private school who, who pay the most money I've ever earned for anything per hour. I didn't want to do it, so I asked for a ridiculous fee and they paid it, which was a bit bad really because I had to do the job then. But <laughs> lovely kids, but they're the same kids that the club has. Yeah. So you've got one set of kids who are having professional coaches with them and the clubs have, haven't even, you know, sort of taken one step onto the ladder. But I also think that when we ran courses under Eddie Pulakundis's guide for the British Athletic Charitable Trust, we held courses during the summer for kids. Yeah. And we used to say anyone who came in the top six in the English schools had a free place. Get the numbers, people had enter nominal fee for the other kids for a day's coaching we paid the coaches and then we found that the English schools kids half them didn't at least did not turn up now when we started saying and it's a silly amount we said right you pay a fiver deposit you get that back if you turn up they all turned up and that silly little amount of money almost like oh well I'm paying for this therefore it must be good and therefore I should go if you give it free, it's almost like you don't have any respect. They think, oh, well, it's free. But if you actually charge people, they actually think, oh, they're charging. Therefore, they must know what they're doing and will go because we're going to get some good coaching. The fact that yeah. we had all the top coaches in the country signed up, you know, to help us with this. And yet these people didn't think it was worth anything because they were getting it free. Very bizarre. Yeah. Well, let's move for a moment just a bit sideways. Uh, and look at the degree to which there's been technical change in the shot and discus, particularly shot with the rotational coming in. Yeah. Where do you see the technical and the training developments, if any? Right. Well, that's a bit of a sore point with me at the minute, but <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll run through what I know about this and what yeah. I think. I think that the women can spin or glide, but their best event is the glide. The blokes... I think they can spin or glide. And I think that their best event is the spin. And if you look statistically, that's absolutely the case. So if you take the world's number one man in the shot, he does a spin, he's thrown 23-35. That's the number one pro ever in the history of the sport. They are strong. Yeah. The guy who's second in the world 
can repetition squat 800 pounds oh. for sets of five. That way would have buried me into the ground quite comfortably. You know, they're going 250 up towards 300 kilos in the bench. Oh, that's interesting. But blokes don't seem to work with the glide as comfortably as the girls do. And, and the statistics support that. No. That's something to do with the yeah. weight of the shot as well, because yeah. the shot only being four kilo for the women, I think it's actually with the spin, you don't get that much advantage. Yeah. Whereas with the men having a 726 or 16 pound shot, I mean, that's very heavy. So you can get more acceleration yeah. with the rotation. But it's interesting too that up till about 10 years ago, we even had some Germans doing a step back and getting 19 meter plus women yeah. with a step back. Yeah, we have a lad in this country who will do 19 with a step back. And that's Lewis Ping. And that's where being flexible as a coach, isn't it, Mike? Yeah. You've got to be saying there's no one way of doing it. We've got to find a way that's, that works with you. That's the difference between a basic coach and an excellent coach is that they can analyse the athlete, find out what their strengths and weaknesses are. I mean, I went to my first ever national squad when Mike was in hospital and he said, no, no, you've got to go, you've got to go. So I went all the way up to Leeds and trained in an indoor area which had an open end, so it was like a howling gale and blizzard coming in and we're wearing about four tracksuits trying to throw indoors. And I came back, having been told I had the best technique in the country and Mike took one look at me and said but you've dropped a meter with a lighter shot what had been done was I'd been taught a technique for someone who was six foot tall and I'm five foot four yeah experimentation so... <laughs> is the key yeah. to coaching I think yeah every athlete is different you have to try each technique you know from beginning to end to see what's right there is no coaching model you know, I've coached probably, I don't know, 12, 16-metre women shot putters, and they're all totally different, absolutely, totally different. I mean, I'm a scientist, so I kind of understand this well enough, but there's an influence of science, incorrect science being applied to our sport. You know, oh, you, you have to have a definitive nutritionist. You have to have a definitive psychologist. You have to have a definitive strength and conditioning person. And all of these disciplines now have become academic and they're missing the point, the point of passion. I mean, I know you as a coach, Tom, as one of the greatest coaches in the world. It's all right, I'm just trying to butter you up a bit, you know. Oh, no, I knew, I knew that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting that. Yeah, I honestly believe that or else I wouldn't talk to you, you know. What do you, what do, you do? Give me time to recover, Mike. Yeah. Give me time to recover. <laughs> but no, underlining what you've said, Mike, uh, when I started, I, I went up to Milton Keynes 20 years ago, and there were three teenagers on the bench, and three little kids of about nine or ten, but three teenagers. One of them, within a year, I started coaching a girl, Natalie, and she became an international a year later. Uh, the second I didn't coach, Chris Clark, uh, within three years was one of the world's under-16 ranked. I mean, I would never have picked him out in a million years. And the thought I started coaching, which was Greg, Greg Rutherford. Yeah. Now, he, he was a footballer. He wasn't even in the club team. <laughs> and two years later, it was number one in the world by about 40 centimetres, as a junior. Ridiculous. Now, no one ever came to ask me how that happened. No, no. Now, why is that? Well, because they don't know anything, Tom. I mean, this is, oh, kind, of, <laughs> this is, this is kind of what I'm trying to say. Well, it was very interesting. I remember I did an interview with Dyson. 
Uh, and again, I, I, Dyson came back to England about 1968-69, and he wasn't given any opportunity to use the knowledge that he had by sports council yeah. or by the governing body. That, and that was even then that happened. Yeah. Well, you've pointed out, both of you, that unless we get a different model operating from the beginning, semi-professional model initially, and uh, rather than a full-time professional model, yeah. then we really we're not, we're not going to get anywhere. I feel that very, very strongly indeed, that, that coaching is at a crossroads. You know, I mean, I, I find it quite difficult to get people to understand that they can do so much better. You know, both the coaching and then coaching the athletes, that the athletes can be so much better. That passion that, that I have for, for the sport, and I know you do as well, Tom, and a lot of the other coaches of, dare I say, our era, they had passion in their hearts. That passion is is so, so important. It's much more important than knowing the angle of release of the shot. You need to have an athlete and say to that athlete, yeah, you can be fantastic. You can be the best in the world. And and if you believe it yourself, you will convey that to the athletes. You could coach a shot winner to throw 22, 23 metres because you, if you didn't know, you would learn. And that was always one of your strengths. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what coaches need to do. Yeah. I've had so many conversations with people about, oh, yeah, the structure for coaching and, and we need a massive structure and we need the science backup. Yeah. And I said, well, look at guys like Ron Pickering or Jeff Dyson or John Lemazuria. He coached an Olympic fourth placer in the discus and, and an 800 metres European champion. How disparate are things of that? So it does show that inherent in good coaches is an ability to inspire yeah. and to learn. And we learn all the time. You know, I'm still learning a hell of a lot. Yes. Well, on that high note, we'll end. Thank you both very much. I think you've given us something quite different yeah. from anything we've had so far. It's been a delight talking to you, Tom. Yeah. We must talk more often. Okay, I'll treat you later. We're off to coach the next champion in the shot. Oh, great. Cheers, brilliant. We'll hold you to that. Okay, cheerio. Okay, then, guys. Thank you. Thank you. See you later.